Why did Jesus suffer? That is the question we began exploring this morning, isn't it? It's a question we are exploring this Easter period. Uh, I said this morning it's the most important question we can ever ask because this question is at the heart of Christianity. The death and resurrection of Jesus is at the heart of Christianity. We said this morning that the suffering of Jesus is like a beautiful diamond, isn't it? The Bible uses many pictures to describe this beauty. And I said, we started looking at this question last year when we had three sermons on this. And the aim this year is to have the other three sermons. So why did Jesus suffer? Well, the first answer, um, as I reminded you this morning, the first pick, the first answer is that Jesus suffered to give us peace with God. Christ is our reconciler. The second picture we see from the, so of, of, of Christ's suffering is that Jesus suffered to make us clean before God by offering His blood as a sacrifice to God. Christ is our sacrifice. The third picture of Christ saving us is that Jesus suffered to set us free from our spiritual slavery of sin, death, and hell by paying a price for us to God. So Christ is our Redeemer. The fourth picture is that we saw it this morning, isn't it? That Christ suffered in our place to take the punishment we deserve. So Christ is our legal substitute. Uh, all of these, the first three sermons are actually online, and the fourth sermon we will put it online later. But these four pictures so far we've looked at, Christ our reconciler, we looked at that from Colossians chapter 1. Christ is our sacrifice from Colossians chapter... Did I say Colossians? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. And Christ is our Redeemer from 1 Peter chapter 1. And this morning we look at Christ as our substitute from 1 Peter chapter 2. This evening we are looking at the fifth picture. Why did Christ suffer? Well, the answer in Hebrews is that Jesus suffered because he came to be our second Adam. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 to 10. This passage, Brother Nick read for us, teaches us that Jesus is God putting on our humanity, who then goes to the cross, dies, and is resurrected to recover the glory we lost in Adam. And the book of Hebrews explains this very well, because the book of Hebrews, you see, was written to early Christians who had left Judaism, right? And it was written to explain to them who Jesus is and what he has done for us. You see, when they left Judaism, many of them were confronted with new questions about Jesus and themselves. Who are we? Where are we going? Who is this Jesus? People were challenging their beliefs about Jesus. Is having Jesus enough? Or should we go back to Judaism and supplement Jesus with some Judaistic beliefs? They started feeling the pressure to add on to Jesus. They are all Judaism custom. And the writer of Hebrews wrote this letter really to respond to two questions that they, are, they had. And the first thing he tells them is that Jesus is our God. I'm so glad Brother Nick um, um, 
read chapter 1 for us because that's what chapter 1 is all about. It's about asserting Jesus is fully God. Is he is who God, God actually calls him God there, doesn't he? In verse 5, I think. And uh, the, the author of Hebrews in the beginning uh, says he's the exact imprint of, of, of God himself. So the chapter 1 is really is establishing that Jesus is God. Chapter 2 is establishing that Jesus is not just God, he's not just fully God, he's also fully man, he's our man. That's what Hebrews chapter 2 is all about. And the chapters that follow that are really designed to apply those two points going forward. So if you know that structure, you can read all of Hebrews. They are really application chapters. This evening we are, we are, we are looking at a passage from chapter 2. This chapter that teaches us Jesus is our man. And we are looking at the truth that is shared here, that Jesus is our second Adam. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 there. And uh, looking at verse 5 to verse 10. There are just two truths I just want to share for you this evening. The first truth is this. Humanity has fallen from glory. Humanity has fallen from glory. You might have heard a story of uh, scientists. A group of scientists uh, go to God (laughs) to tell him that he is no longer necessary. Because they have harnessed the powers of science. Uh, to create human life. So God looks at this scientist, he's very intrigued that they've come to him with this sort of suggestion. So God asks for a demonstration just to see what they're up to. And so one scientist, of course, reaches down and grabs a handful of dirt from the ground to begin the process of showing that they could create something. At that point, of course, God stops him and says, get your own dirt. You can't go on with this. Now, when I think about that fictional story, it is intended to remind us... Well, she finds it funny. <laughs> it's intended... I'm glad she said funny, funny. I think it's funny. It is intended to remind us as human beings, we are totally dependent on God for everything, including death. We depend on God because God created all things, including ourselves, including the dead on the ground. He created all things, including humanity, didn't he? And we see this at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. There will be a lot of jumping this evening, so track with me on this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, those opening words of the Bible, if you never get tired of reading them, says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we go on to read the verses that follow that. Uh, after God creates everything, God goes on to create other more things over the next couple of days, doesn't it? And uh, the, the crowning achievement at the end of this six-day six process is in verse 26 of chapter 1 there, uh, of Genesis chapter 1. Let's read Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 to the 26 to verse 31. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping things, thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And I have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Verse 30, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And verse 31 goes on to say, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now, as we read Genesis chapter 1 and those verses and other verses around Genesis chapter 1, there's a lot of things happening actually in the opening chapters of Genesis that is debated. And to be honest, we cannot claim to fully understand every single thing that's going on in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 to chapter 3. But this we do know. We know that Adam and Eve were historical persons, and we know that Adam and Eve were special creations of God and the first parents of the human race. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read of God fashioning Adam by his hands, his very hands. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 to 22, tells us of God personally creating the first woman, Eve, from the rib of Adam. So the Bible is very clear that humanity is very special. And the special nature of humanity is underlined by the words in verse 27 of chapter 1 there. Let's read them again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis, is, that verse is making it that only human beings are made in the image of God. And to be made in the image of God is not saying that God, God is a man or we are God, right? It means we as human beings share the same nature as God. As God is spirit, we are spirit. God has a mind, emotions, and the ability to choose, so do we. God is good. Just, loving, and merciful. And we were created with these qualities as well. And being in God's image also means we are created to act in ways that God would act. To live in a way that represents God in the world. And when we think of these glorious blessings that that are summarized here, uh, that, that, that are indicated for us here, they are actually summarized for us in Psalm 8. That psalm, that wonderful psalm, begins and ends with extolling God, doesn't it? O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's how it starts, and that's how it ends. And right in the middle of Psalm 8, actually, uh, the inspired poet rejoices in the goodness of God, uh, the the goodness of God lavishing his glory and honor. On our first parents. Let's read a bit of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 verse 3 to 6 says this. When I look at your heavens. 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. These words are capturing the beauty and the glory with which man was first created by God. And the author of Hebrews, actually, the passage we are looking at, picks up on these words. Let's go to Hebrews. Now, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 to 8, says this. Did you notice those words when Brother Nick read them? It said this. He has been testified somewhere. That is in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. That's what the heavenly being is interpreted. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And he goes on to say, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But notice that the author of Hebrews does not end where Psalm 8 ends. He actually reminds us of something that happened in Genesis. <laughs> Humanity fell from glory and remains like that. In other words, Psalm 8 was referring to Adam and Eve, really, before they fell. Now, here the author of Hebrews tells us that Psalm 8, the reality now is like this. Let's read on verse 8. Verse, notice what it says in verse 8. It goes on to say verse 8, doesn't it? It says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That is, at the moment, yes, things were done in Adam and Eve. They had, everything was put under their feet. But now, the life we are living now, we do not see everything under subjection. Because man has fallen, hasn't it? Man has fallen, and we read about this fall from glory in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, if, you, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, you just scan over there, you see that the Bible tells us that our first parents rebelled against God. They were led astray by an instrument of Satan. They sinned against God. Now, when we think about the, what happens in Genesis and the fall of man, we have to remember a very important point, that if of course, sinned first, right? But God put the responsibility on Adam. Why? Because Adam is the federal head of the human race. That's very important. I want you to register that thought because we are coming back to it in a moment. The point I want to underline here is that the fall of man in Adam has left catastrophic consequences for us today. And the author of Hebrews picks up one key loss. One key thing we've lost. It's in verse 8. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 there. At present, the way it starts off, at present, like right there in the middle, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Man has lost control. Man has lost glory, right? 
We are no longer in dominion of this world. Now that sounds quite interesting because the obvious question you must ask is, who is now in charge? Who is in charge now? The surprising answer is that it is angels who are now in charge. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. He says, I'm not talking about angels who, it's not to angels that God has subjected the world that is coming, right? Now, the author of Hebrews, to be sure, does not say there immediately that angels are now in charge, as I've just asserted. I'll uh, explain that in a moment. That verse in verse 5 actually says, it says God has not put angels in charge of the future world. But that verse should be understood, is definitely understood from a Jewish perspective, that it implies that angels are in charge now in the present world, under God's authority. The author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers. His audience, perhaps better than us, are already aware of an important passage in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. It reads this. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, reads this. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to what? The numbers of the sons of God. Now, when we looked at that passage last year, we concluded as we were studying, uh, we were looking at this passage last year, we concluded that clearly that passage must be understood as clearly referring to the administration of the nations under angelic powers. God, by his purposes, it seems, after the fall of man, put the present world under angelic control. So, but the author of Hebrews is keen to remind us that this is temporary. God has not planned that for, for the future world. But we have lost dominion, and if you like, angels have come in as caretakers for now, while things are a mess. And they are operating under his authority to care for this world at the minute. We have lost dominion. And that's very important for us to realize, we have not lost dominion to Satan. God retains control, but he exercises it through angelic beings. The key point I just want to emphasize here is that man has truly fallen from glory. Why am I belaboring this point? Because you see, if we don't understand this truth, we can't understand ourselves. We can't understand ourselves. You see, because we have lost this glory, the story of the human, the human story is the story of searching to recover this lost glory. All of us, that's what we are up to. We are trying to find fulfillment. We are trying to recover this glory in different ways. Some are searching for this lost glory in family. Some are searching for this lost glory in having a better health. Some are searching for this lost glory we've lost in hobbies. Others are searching for it in therapy, mindfulness, yoga, many other things. And as a civilization, everything we do from pursuing economic growth, building the tallest buildings ever, technology, politics, everything we're doing is all about this. 
the search for the lost glory. We are looking to recover that lost glory. And the places we're looking for is endless. I wonder if you sit here this afternoon, where are you looking to recover that lost glory? And if you want to know the answer to where you're looking, you must say, I'm not looking anywhere, I'm just looking to go. Well, if you want to know where you're really looking, just look at what is driving your decisions. Where are you trying to find comfort and fulfillment in life? What is driving the decisions you're making? And whatever is driving that, it is where you are seeking to recover that lost glory. The answer is where your heart is searching for your, a better you, a better humanity. It is where, in that, the words of that Josh Woody Color advert I shared earlier this year, we want to be us again. We want to be better humans again, don't we? And the question I have to ask you is, have you achieved it yet? Have you found the lost glory you lost in the Garden of Eden? Deep down our hearts, all of us know that we, are, we will never truly recover our lost humanity. We have tried, and we're still trying. But the good news of this passage is that we can stop searching for that lost glory. Because God has come to give us back that lost glory we lost in Adam. He has come in Jesus as our second Adam. And that is the second truths and final truth I just want to share in this passage. The first truth is that humanity has fallen. So what's the answer? The good news is that Jesus restores the glory of humanity. Jesus restores the glory of humanity. You see, the record of the fall of humanity in Genesis contains an interesting promise. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's in Genesis chapter 3 verse 2, 15, sorry. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says this, I will put, after man falls, and God is, if you like, giving out curses to various, uh, to those involved, uh, speaking now to the, to the serpent, he says, I'll put in enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and our offspring. It shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You probably read that a lot of times. I just want to flag up three things that stands out immediately from there. Or perhaps just two. First of all, God promises there in, in, in the Proto-Evangelium, in, in Genesis 3 verse 15, he promises, first of all, to bring hostility between humanity, really, and the serpent who we know has Satan. That's the first thing. Secondly, God promises in Genesis that an offspring, some special person, will battle with Satan at cost to himself. You suffer damage. You'll be bruised, you know, himself. You, what does he say exactly in Genesis 3? He says, you, bruise, you shall bruise his heel. You suffer damage, right? This special person God will raise. At cost to himself, but he will ultimately prevail. Why do we know? Because he shall bruise the serpent's head. He will defeat Satan. What, the other thing we notice here is that this offspring will clearly be human, right? Because it's a descendant of Eve. This is the offspring, Eve's offspring, the offspring of the woman. 
But also, for this person to crush the serpent, it must be greater than the serpent. It must have supernatural power greater than Satan. But of course, Genesis never identifies this person. We have to work through the old Bible and arrive in the New Testament to find out the identity of this person. And the passage we are looking at in, in Hebrews chapter 2, 5 to 10, identifies this person. Because the person described there is, is, is a long-awaited offspring. It is, he is God the Son, who was introduced when Brother Nick read Hebrews chapter 1 for us. Jesus has come as God now to bruise, to crush the serpent, so to speak. He has done this by putting on our humanity. Let's read verse 8 to verse 9 there. At present, I'll start from the middle of verse, verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Let's just pause there. Because we notice there that again that the writer, the writer of Hebrews is quoting again Psalm 8. Psalm 8 describes Adam and Eve, as I said, before the fall, but he's now saying, oh, it's not just about Adam and Eve, it's also about this man, Jesus. This God the Son. Why? Because God the Son has come as the ideal man. This passage is therefore is teaching us that Jesus is God the Son coming to be among us as a second Adam to recover the lost glory of Psalm 8, the lost glory of Genesis chapter 1. And how does Jesus do this? Well, the answer is in, is in verse 9 to 10. Let's read it together. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He was made man, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he, may, he might test death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The key phrase in these entire two verses is for a little while. That's the key to understanding what the writer is saying. It's in verse 9, isn't it? Who for a little while. What does it mean that Jesus was for a little while made like us? It is telling us that God the Son, for a little while, put on our fallen humanity of Adam. He lived a life as a man, in a state of humiliation. He lived as a member of the race of the first Adam. He did it perfectly. This is what is meant by the other phrase there that might have puzzled you, which says he was made perfect. Did you pick that up? It says this in verse in verse 10, isn't it? For it was fitting that he for whom and by, all, by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
It's not saying Jesus was, there was a time when Jesus was not perfect. Rather, what it is saying is that Jesus has been tried and tested. He comes as a baby, doesn't he? He comes in the virgin womb, in the, the womb of the Virgin Mary. He become, he grow, he is born obviously doesn't grow a man from the womb. He is, he's, you know, he's a, he's a toddler. He grows up, etc., etc., and he becomes a man. And of course, then Jesus is tested. What's going on with this test? Well, Jesus is, is, is living the life that Adam couldn't live. He's passing every stage, every moment. And as he passes every single test that Adam felt in the garden, Jesus is then able to take this fallen body, yeah, this Adamic body, of the, of, of the, this physical body, he takes that human body and he nails it to the cross. The phrase for a little while is telling us that his death was not the end. Jesus now rose with the, this is important, a new resurrected human body. That's important. So he puts on the old Adam, takes the old Adam to the cross. It is nailed to the cross. Jesus is buried. But when he rises, he's got a super duper body. Can walk through walls and all that, right? A new resurrected body. And that's important, isn't it? Because this new body of Jesus now is the first fruit, as Paul calls it in Corinthians. It is a new prototype for a new human race. And this new human race is a race now that is, what? Exalted with glory and honor. In verse 9, doesn't it? But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned now, having risen with glory and honor because he has suffered and risen. We should note, by the way, in verse 9, that when verse 9 says everyone, notice that, so that by the grace of God he might test death for everyone, it is not referring to the whole world. In fact, it is referring to the many in verse 10, isn't it? For it was fitting that he for whom and by all things exist in bringing the many sons to glory. So he tests death for everyone, but everyone is the many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus, if you like, is now the founder of those who have faith in him. Jesus is now the federal head of a new humanity, a new race of those who have been made truly human again. That's the wonder of this passage. The question we started off is, why did Jesus suffer? The answer here is that he suffered as a second Adam who inaugurates a new glorious humanity of those who died in Christ and rose in Christ with him. This is the good news of Easter, isn't it? That if you're trusting in Jesus, you are no longer belonging to the first Adam. The story of the human race is the story of two Adams. You're either in the old Adam or you're in the new Adam. And if you are in Christ, you are in the second Adam. You belong now to a new humanity, a new race. And it's an amazing, amazing thought to think about. Because this truth now brings, gives us meaning, doesn't it? It changes everything. 
We are all asking three questions in life, aren't we? Who am I? We all ask that. Why am I here? And thirdly, where am I going? Maybe you can think of some other ones, but those are the three words that I want to know the answer to. Who am I? Where am I here? And where am I going? And what Jesus has done, our coming with the second Adam, answers all three for us who are in Christ. Because if you are trusting Christ, you know who you are. You are a new person belonging to a new humanity in the second Adam. This is your new identity. It is a permanent identity. Because regardless of your background or how much you mess up, if you are in Jesus, you are part of a new race of humanity. We need to really take that in, this idea of a new race. I like it because you can never change your race. Right? I know people try and bleach and do all sorts of things, try and be different color, right? But no matter how somebody tries, deep down they can never change. If you're black, you're black. You're white, you're white. You are different, whatever color that is. You are that. (coughs) And if you are in Jesus, if you like, if you are in Jesus, you have now taken on a new spiritual skin in Jesus, our second Adam. And dare I say, this is why the Bible can say there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female. Really, there's no race in Christ. Why? Because we all have one race in the new humanity. When we look at brothers who are different, we're looking at them in their new spiritual scheme. And we need to remember this truth because we are living at a time when people are identifying themselves as this and that and races are divided and, and there's so much thing going on. People are confused about their identity. This truth is telling us here that actually all identities in Adam are broken, fractured. Race, this, all these identities, they're all fractured identities. The only identity that now counts is this new spiritual skin we put on in Christ. And all identities must now be made subservient to this identity. And if you're in Christ, you must see yourself now as in the second Adam. And, and dare I say, this should change your attitude on how you live in the world. It should challenge us, isn't it? I recently came across something called black fishing. An interesting term I was reading about. Black fishing is basically where, say, a white person believes and behaves as if they are black. So it's called black fishing. Uh, There's white fishing, I guess, where a black person believes and behaves on another race that they are white. Everything about their character, everything, they believe they are a different race, right? They know they are a different race, but they behave and act as a different race. It's called, for obviously white people behaving black, it's called black fishing. I think mean, they're fishing to be black. I, I think I guess that's a term, right? Beloved, when we are in Christ and we have this new race in Christ, this new spiritual skin, when we are behaving and seeking to be contrary to who we are not, we are... I guess spiritual fishing. I was thinking of it. It must be sort of spiritual fishing. Because we belong to the new Adam, the second Adam, Christ. Why would we want to live dragging the old Adam identities behind? That are really trying to be defined by those Adamic identities. No. We are now in Christ. But every time we are tolerating sin, 
Every time we are building our lives around sin, we are foolishly going back to those old broken identities. We are leaving behind our glorious new humanity. It is madness. The more I look at Christ, the more I realize just how mad sin is. I mean, it's, it's just, sin is foolishness. That's what the Bible calls it. And you can see why, isn't it? Because if we're in Christ, why would we go back to our old way of life? So this answers, first of all, who am I? Well, it answers the second question as well, isn't it? Why am I here? Why am I here? That's the second question I want to know. Why am I here? Well, it says this. If you're in Christ, our second Adam, you know why you are in this world. You are in this world to restore, because you have been restored to carry on Adam's mandate in Genesis 1. Adam fell. Our second Adam succeeded, and we are now in the second Adam, and we have now taken over the mandate of Genesis 1 and beyond. And now we're going to look at, we could, if we have more time, we'll study what that mandate looks like and how it applies to our lives today. But I think I would simply emphasize that all, what God asked Adam and Eve to do in the Garden of Eden was simply this, to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. They were created to live to promote God. But they chose to promote themselves. And if we are now in Christ, we must realize we are here to promote Jesus, promote the glory of God, promote our Father. And so the question you you should ask yourself this evening is this, am I, if I'm trusting in Christ, am I living to promote myself like the first Adam? Or do I live to promote God like the second Adam? When I'm talking to my wife or my children, am I trying to promote God's agenda in the world or am I trying to promote my own agenda? The way we do church, dare I say church attendance should be about that. When I decide to attend or not attend, how am I making that decision? Is my decision to attend certain thing about me promoting myself or is it about me promoting other things? The reason many of us don't attend even church things is because it's about promoting ourselves. Now, of course, some, there are good reasons for sometimes not attending things, but I'm simply pointing out as an example that we should make this issue the heart of everything in our lives and ask ourselves, every decision am I making, is it about promoting God, is it about promoting me? It doesn't mean we'll do everything, it means we'll say no to other things and we'll rest in our identity, remember, we have in Christ. When I am in a meeting at work, am I there as a member of the fallen race of the first Adam, or am I there as a member of the new humanity? That's an interesting question to ask ourselves. Because because if you are there as God's ambassador, you think a bit differently, don't you? You have a different take. You're necessarily bound by what everybody else is thinking. You're seeing everything from the lens of your new humanity. In Christ. So this answers what we are here for. The third question I ask is, where am I going? Where am I going, right? That's the question we all ask. Why, who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Well, this answers that question, isn't it? Because the new humanity is going only to one place. We are headed to see Jesus face to face. That's where I'm going. And if you are in Christ, that's where you're going to. Because First John chapter 3, verse 2 tells us, doesn't it? 
First John chapter 3, this is our final reference, says this. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are the new humanity. And what will be has not yet fully appeared. In other words, we are put on our humanity, yes, in our new humanity, but it's not yet fully in blossom, full in, in its full view. There's still a not yet component. And John goes on to say, but what we know, but we know that when he appears, that is Jesus, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What does John mean that we shall see him, we shall be like him? Well, it, mean, it doesn't mean you become God. That's quite important. What John means is that you'll be like Jesus in his full glorified humanity. We will put on a new glorified body. We'll have a body like Jesus. The body Jesus had when he rose from the grave. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like Jesus' glorious body, isn't it? This is what God has always intended for us. Not just a new body, but a new character like Jesus. Totally spotless character. Holy, pure, righteous. We will never sin again. How about that, eh? Never sinning again. Are you not tired of sinning every day? I'm tired. I'm tired of sin in my life. One day sinning and repenting next day. Are you not tired of upsetting people in your life? There's always somebody upset with us, isn't there? For whatever reason, they're always upset about something. I'm tired of that. Are you not tired of looking in the mirror and not liking what you see? I'm tired of that. I'm tired of that too. It does not matter how much makeup you put on or how many wonderful clothes you, 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 you buy. We all long for better bodies and a better character. And the good news of Easter, the wonderful news of Easter, is that because Jesus is our second Adam, we who are in Jesus know for sure that one day we'll be like Jesus. And I don't know, as you sit here this afternoon, maybe you're struggling with emotional and physical pain or other things going on in your life. Or maybe you just feel rotten inside. Or perhaps you just feel lonely, worthless, and disappointed with one issue or the other. You may even be struggling and barely holding on. Or maybe you're looking at the future, you don't know what the future lies. You are living each day as it comes. Well, God is saying to you, the good news of Easter is that all followers of Jesus have no reason to despair. We have no reason to despair. Because if you belong to this new humanity, the new race, you are destined to be like Jesus. And live with him in the new heavens and new earth. And so we must let this truth sink deep in our heart this Easter. And when people ask us what is this about, we've got a story to tell, don't we? We can explain these things, these pictures. You, evangelism now you, gives you a whole range of things. You can talk about Jesus, you're a reconciler. You can talk about maybe Jesus as a substitute, how Easter shows that. You can now explain to them perhaps this truth. Jesus is our second Adam. He brings that which people are longing for, a better version of themselves. But he really brings it. So let this sink in your heart. Let it become the center of your relationship. And pray to the Lord that he helps you appreciate what you already have in Christ and enables you to look forward to what lies ahead of you. Amen.